재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵. Time now for International News Digest. We're going to get some expert analysis on some of the major issues making headlines around the world. Our first guest, very pleased to have him from the National Center for Scientific Research at ENS Kashan, Professor Claude Didri. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us, Professor. We want to get your thoughts uh, on these labor reform bills that have been proposed. It has uh, resulted in um, massive unrest, strikes, and demonstrations. Uh, the government has stood firm. They say they are going to push through with this. And we've had a similar situation here in Korea, uh, maybe qu- not quite as volatile. But uh, first question, Professor, can you just tell us a little bit about the uh, labor law and how it's different from the previous one? Yeah, of course. Uh, this, new lab- this new labor reform uh, is not yet adopted, uh, I have to underline it, but it is part of a package of reforms undertaken at least since 2008. These reforms aim a greater flexibility of employment and in compensation, aim to provide individual workers with a greater security in the transition from an employment to another. One of the main issues of this new law proposal is to encourage widely collective bargain at the level of the firm, even if it is derogatory to the sector level, especially on themes like collective redundancies, working time, or wages. Now, what do the labor reforms aim to achieve, and what would you say are the short-term and long-term benefits to the labor reforms? According to me, France's labor reforms aim to reinforce employers' confidence by giving them tools to adapt their workforce to the fluctuations of their economic activities. The main tools are based on individual negotiations with what we call contractual terminations of the employment and on collective bargain at the level of the firm on the, the themes I mentioned. I mean collective redundancies, wages, or working time. The expected benefits are the creation of more employment by employers who should no longer fear the difficulties to adapt their workforce in an uncertain conjuncture. According to a recent poll by the French daily uh, Le Parisien, 70% oppose the government's way of reforming uh, labor laws. Why, why does... Why do the French people vehemently oppose labor reforms, and what are their biggest concerns? Uh, I think the, the, the French people are very attached to their jobs and their firms, and they are particularly, particularly sensitive to the threats of, of layoffs. More generally, one of the biggest concerns is the pressure people feel at work related to the need of a more numerous workforce, to, to uh, tackle, to, to, to realize their work, and uh, the need uh, of more communication on the firm strategies. And uh, as I explained in a recent book, the institution of work, labor law, is not seen by people only as a personal protection, but also as the base for a collective participation of the workers in work organizations and firm strategies. And Unfortunately, according to me, the reform don't the, the, the recent reform don't
don't address these problems. Now, following the 2008 financial crisis, many European countries have faced double-digit unemployment rates and shrinking GDPs.、Uh, they've implemented、uh, many reforms in their labor and financial markets in response. Could you tell us what measures、uh, other European countries have taken to tackle the high levels of unemployment, and has any European country implemented the、um, the French government's、uh, styled proposed labor reforms? Yeah, of course.、Uh, I think that we have to to remind that one of the main consequences of the 2008 financial crisis has been,、uh, especially in France, an explosion、uh, of layoffs, which can be seen as the main factor in the increase of in uh, uh, unemployment. Uh, and uh, in this situation, I think. Obviously, there is a relation between the financial markets and firms' restructuring. But in order to to understand the dynamics of the, the actual the, the, the current reforms, we have to take into account another consequence of the financial crisis. This is the debt of the states. The attempt to lower these debts leads to the requirement of what we call Structural reforms by international institutions such as European Central Bank, International Monetary Fund, or even the European Commission itself. And so, labour market reforms are nowadays in Europe seen as the core of these structural reforms, as they are supposed to lead to the reduction of unemployment and of its costs. It, exp- it explains why labour reforms. Are in the agenda of the European governments, with, for example, labour reforms in Italy and in Spain. This labour reform, and especially the labour reform in, in Spain,、uh, are very similar. That, uh, and uh, uh, there is、uh, in Spain and in France a similar emphasis on employment flexibility and derogatory collective agreements at the level of the firm. But we integrate also the model of Germany with reform of 2003 and 2005, five,、uh, which have created precarious and underpaid mini-jobs. So all these things echoes to the claim for competitivity by firms in order to encourage exportation and to reduce the cost of unemployment. But maybe it does not address the problem of. Layers and firms restructuring. And do you think、uh, François Hollande's new measures would successfully kickstart France's economy if he is able to push them through?、Um, uh, excuse me. Uh, um, uh, yes, uh, I, I think I think、uh, François Hollande has a great problem nowadays, France, because. Uh, he, is, he has taken measures that contradict、uh, his program as candidate for presidency.、Uh, this is not was what his electorate expected. So it creates nowadays a huge problem of confidence and of credibility of what the president can do nowadays. 
I think that uh, uh, as in many European countries, French people are becoming more and more skeptical of European Union and globalization. And in such a situation, labor reforms based on a greater employment flexibility and a lowering of labor conditions are no longer acceptable by a large part of the people and could contribute to a very risky political crisis, I think, to the, uh, the increase of extreme parties. Hmm. And the final question, bottom line, are you optimistic that the French government will eventually convince its people that these labor reforms are necessary? So, as you have guessed in my former answer, I'm, I'm not uh, optimistic at all. Mm. And I think we have to face a major crisis, which is not only, I would say, a social and a, an economic crisis, but also which can become a political crisis. Right. Well, on that somewhat uh, pessimistic note, uh, we will have to leave it there. Professor Didri, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Sorry for having been pessimistic, but <laughs> sometimes it's necessary to, to be realistic. Right. Well understood. Bye-bye. Thank you. For this interview. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thank you. That was Professor Claude Didri from the National Center for Scientific Research. Uh, let's turn to our next issue. The German parliament uh, overwhelmingly voted to label the 1915 killings of Armenians by Ottoman forces as genocide. In response, the Turkish government recalled its ambassador to Germany in fury and said Berlin's resolution would seriously affect relations between the two nations. To learn more about this, uh, we are joined on the line, very pleased to have the president of the German-Armenian Society, Dr. Rafi Kantian. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I I think a lot of people who aren't from uh, this area, we know about the uh, situation, the Armenian genocide and and what happened and the sensitivity of it for um, Turkey, I suppose. But can you just, for for some background, help our listeners better understand uh, this big controversy going on right now regarding Germany and Turkey, as well as uh, how they view the Armenian genocide? Well, uh, as you stated, um, Turkey is quite furious, uh, and, well, they have their reasons why, why they are furious, but the main thing is that there is a very positive approach to their own history in Turkey, uh, and uh, this is quite different from the international view, uh, how these things are being appreciated, and this is the main source of uh, fury, of the Turkish fury. Uh, If you look at German, uh, sorry, Turkish textbooks, then you hardly find anything uh, which precisely describes what happened in 1915. The thing is quite different if you took at, uh, if you have a look at the archival materials, for example, in the German Foreign Office, they talk very openly and very overtly what had happened in back in 1915. So in this uh, divergent um, approach lies one of the main reasons why the Turks are so furious now. In terms of politically, and uh, as we understand it, people who are not from Germany, there is quite a sizable Turkish immigrant population. Turkey geographically is uh, quite close to Germany, not always, of course, um, agreeing on a lot of issues necessarily. But politically, why did Germany decide to 
vote to recognize the Armenian genocide and, and the timing of it right now? Well, first of all, don't forget that the German Empire was an ally, the key ally of the Ottoman Empire mm. in 1915 until 1918. So uh, they have a special knowledge of the things which happened back there in 1915. That's number one. The second thing is that the process of recognizing the events of 1915 as genocide go back to, well, the year 2000. Uh, so it has a history of almost 15 years. And 2004, the, foreign, the German foreign minister, Joschka Fischer, was the first one who visited the uh, genocide memorial in Armenia. One year later, uh, the German parliament uh, adopted a text where there were great talk of all the things happening in, or happened in 1915 back in the Ottoman Empire and called them just massacres and deportations. But the, uh, if you have a look at the text of the resolution, it is very explicit and very detailed. Uh, they were reluctant in not using um, the word genocide at the time for various reasons, one being that uh, Turkey is a close ally, was and is a cold ally and have got very good economic relations with Turkey. That was one of the key reasons why why they didn't use at the time uh, the expression uh, genocide. Now, back in uh, 2015, things had changed. Many of the surrounding countries of Germany had already adopted uh, genocide resolutions, uh, for example, France in 2001, and even Austria, uh, which was also a close ally of the Ottoman Empire, had adopted uh, a resolution in which the word genocide was being used. So Germany was quite alone in that respect, and uh, that's why the German president, Mr. Gauck, uh, used in his speech on uh, April 23 uh, the word, very explicitly the word genocide, mm. followed by the German parliament on April 24, 2015, so almost a year ago, more than a year ago, again the word uh, genocide. The president of the parliament, Mr. Lummert, used that phrasing, and all the members of the parliament who uh, spoke on that day used that word too. After that, uh, we know we have this trouble with the people coming from Syria and mm. Iraq and whatnot. And was, Germany was heavily dependent and is still heavily dependent on Turkish um, help, so to say. Right. And for that respect, they waited for quite some time, especially the government, waited for quite some time off before using that phrase. And one must admit that this phrase... Mod or genocide was used by the parliament, not by the government. The government is still very reluctant in using uh, that phrase. And interestingly, on that very day uh, when this resolution was adopted, the foreign minister was not there, mm. uh, the vice chancellor was not there, Mrs. Mr. Gabriel, uh, and the chancellor, uh, Mrs. Merkel, wasn't there too. Uh, so this shows quite explicitly they, that they are not very much interested in getting into troubled waters with Turkey. And it certainly, as you say, uh, really reflects that uh, the domestic political sentiment, but then the realities of, I suppose, Germans' uh, diplomatic uh, initiatives and, and priorities sometimes don't align. But essentially what you are saying is that Germany, uh, at least with this resolution, has really come along to just simply follow international norms on yes, the perspective exactly. of this issue, right? Exactly, exactly. 
Uh, they really followed international norms, and as I said, they neighbors. Many, uh, almost all of them, are now well uh, countries with, which explicitly use the word "fulcrumot." And interestingly, even communal parliaments, for example, in in Italy, have uh, adopted resolutions. Interestingly, in which they condemn it as a, for example, as a genocide. Uh, the Sicily, Sicily has got a regional parliament, and they adopted a resolution, and this applies for f- uh, another 70 communal parliaments in Italy, mm-hmm. which adopted similar resolutions. Funnily enough, one would say, because what has a communal parliament to do with the genocide? But they still uh, worked on that and adopted uh, right. resolutions on that respect. Yes. I imagine you are aware, but many of our listeners here in Korea, not just sympathizing uh, with Armenia on this issue, but also have a sense of uh, we've also felt that same pain because of the fact that uh, during the uh, Japanese imperial period, many atrocities were committed, especially during World War II, uh, the issue of the comfort women, and and a lot of these hosts of issues that Koreans feel that Japan has not necessarily owned up to. They do not accurately portray it in their school history textbook. So I think a lot of our listeners can see some parallels here, but it does seem a big stumbling block to relations. As far as Armenia and Turkey goes, what what does Turkey, what should they do in terms of, I know it's a national pride issue, I know there's a lot of other issues at play, but what can Turkey do short of, I suppose, admitting their role in this genocide to improve relations between the two countries? Uh, one thing is that they should put straight uh, the realities, which unfortunately they don't. Uh, there is a tiny uh, civil society in Turkey, and this is very active in, um, well, putting the, th- the term straight in that respect, mm. historic realities, but not so the government. The government is still sticks to the, I would say, almost the ideology that nothing happened. Uh, the Armenians had uprisings, and they were deported because of that. Uh, so this is quite a big stumbling block, although, and this should be added, now uh, books are available which deal realistically with these things. These books are not available at the universities, though. So if you go to a high school and learn history lessons or have history lessons, they hardly find these hardcore facts. They have, you have a very idealistic, very positivistic view of the things that happened. As long as this prevails, it's very difficult Mm. to have a common ground. There are, for example, professors who say very openly now what happened then back in 1950 was a genocide. But this, again, is a tiny minority. As long as the government doesn't uh, take uh, appropriate steps, steps, well, things will continue this way. This is unfortunately the reality. We w- we've yet to see what the international impact of this will be. But I'm curious, as uh, in the country of Germany itself uh, and the groups of Armenians who live there and the groups of uh, Turkish people who live there, uh, what has been the effect as far as society goes in uh, Germany within the various diaspora? Well, the thing is that, first of all, uh, the Turkish diaspora is not monolithic. There is a wide mm-hmm. range of Turks who are nationalistic, of course, and they follow the course of the respective government, of Mr. Erdogan and whatnot. But there, again, there is also a sizable Turkish minority, Turkish Kurdish minority, one would say, which are, I think, just the other way around. So interestingly, when 
the more the religious and nationalistic Turks apply to the German parliament and say, please don't uh, uh, forget this this uh, genocide thing, and this is no genocide, and mm. what the Armenians are telling are all lies, what not. Uh, the other group, Turkish and Kurdish groups, who are all from Turkey, uh, pretended just the opposite. They asked the parliament uh, to adopt that resolution. So this shows there is, of course, uh, a discrepancy within the Turkish community in Germany. As to the Armenians, well, they all wanted that this uh, resolution should be finally adopted, because not just because uh, Germany is one of the many countries who have adopted a similar thing, but because of the German complicity in 1950, because uh, Germany, as I said, was, uh, first of all, an ally. Uh, it was a witness, a key witness. That was, that's why we have uh, many, many documents in the German archives about the things that happened in 1915. But because of the role played by Germany, it wasn't just uh, a witness. It was more than a witness, in a way. Although the events of 1915 were designed by the Young Turks, role Germany played a minor but a decisive role in that. And that's why this was quite important for the Armenians mm. in Germany, that uh, Germany finally adopts a resolution where the right word, <laughs> genocide is meant by that, of course, uh, be used. And it was finally done in, uh, in June, uh, June right. 2. Well, uh, very interesting indeed. Dr. Kantian, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for your interest. And bye-bye. Thank you. Uh, we, before we go, I just want to remind you that we are moving on July 4th to new headquarters. It's going to be an exciting period. Uh, it's going to be a big move indeed. We'll be in Sangamdong at Mapo District, but regardless of the move, we'll continue to bring you uh, the great content that we always try to do. And also, a brief preview of tomorrow's show. We will be talking about basic income. It's something that's been proposed in various countries. Well, Switzerland actually had a very serious initiative, a referendum, where maybe to the surprise of some, Swiss voters overwhelmingly rejected the bill that would have guaranteed basic income for everyone. It was a 77% against so it was quite a landslide as far as the nays. It would have given about 2,500 Swiss francs, about $2,500 uh, to each citizen. Uh, a lot of people, of course, tout the benefits of basic income, but other people say that there would be a drain on the economy in the long term. So we'll get some analysis on that. We do hope you enjoy the rest of your evening, and we'll see you again tomorrow. My name is Henry Shin. Goodbye.